This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Sklina. And I'm your host, Matt Sklina. And Matt, we all know what makes you happy. A Dairy Queen ice cream <laughs> cake with uh, nobody watching. Um, <laughs> but what makes a city happy? That, that is a question we asked. Yeah, I had the answer for me. But that's a question we asked Charles Montgomery, who is on the show today, author of the book, Happy City. And you got the subtitle. I do have the subtitle. It is Happy City. And we should wait stamp this uh, 195 pounds. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's Happy City. And the subtitle is Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design. And, and here's a few things to note about Happy City and Charles. First off, he has created a consulting firm. This book was wildly successful. He is now a consultant here in the city of Vancouver with a team uh, doing really interesting work and he talks about that on the show but also a lot of people that listen to this podcast asked us to to have charles on and yeah. i'm so glad uh they did because it led us to this book which is great and uh yeah it's a great episode today that's for sure well west coast you know being the best coast uh definitely is a happy area of the world and a lot of people are lifestyle driven here and i think you guys cover i i should say i wasn't involved in this interview that's right but it sounds like you guys cover exactly kind of what makes a city happy that's right what makes a city happy uh what types of buildings lead to happiness kind of built environment as well it's uh it's interesting in vancouver i was thinking you know i went into this thinking that vancouver would have been 
kind of the impetus for this study. Right. And I was thinking even about loneliness. You know, people talk about uh, loneliness in Vancouver and everything else. But it seems like it was uh, it was. He lived in Vancouver, but he wasn't conceived here. So anyway, stay tuned for this. You, he you wasn't don't want to miss conceived it. here. The, the book idea wasn't conceived oh, here. Oh, okay. I don't think he was either. But uh, he moved here as a young uh, young man. But Matt, before we get to our interview with Charles, uh, we've got Labor Day weekend coming up, That's and right. it's going to be the end of Labor Day. No more white leisure suit secret. Um, <laughs> you'll have to put that away. Uh, but really, though, we should say the the market was busy last month. Yeah, it it's, feels busy. It feels busy right now. Yeah, We're waiting feel. on the stats for August. But really, you know, even after Labor Day, uh, assuming the fall market kind of picks up and is busier than the spring market, which a lot of people are anticipating, it's not the time to not be putting all your efforts into selling your home if you're selling this fall market. Yeah, right? and you know what? Go back. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Right. You know, strategies in a softer market, which even if the market picks up, we're still in, you know, you still have to put in some effort here. It's not like the old days. For sure. And we should say we're going to have an amazing resource coming next episode. I can't wait. This is a resource for sellers. We have compiled our tips for putting your home on the market. It's going to be a guide available on our website, and this will be available next week. We'll announce it on the podcast, but we are super excited. This thing's dynamite. So we're heading to the lab with a pen and a pad. Yeah, we're, we're going to try and get this damn seller's guide off. Can't wait for that. But uh, Matt, before we... Uh, be, oh, you got actually one more thing you want to say before we cut to our interview. I do. And it's called Vancouverism by Larry Beasley. It's a book. We got a lot of copies. They are all signed. We're giving away one a week. We have a new winner. We do. But as tradition holds, we will wait till after the talk with Charles to announce that winner. But if you want to get in on this... Yeah, and, how, do, how do people do that? And you know what? It's it's very easy, and the odds of winning are very high. There's only Let's, like 70 reviews or something. That, so, But thank you, everybody, for the reviews. We appreciate every single one of them. What you do is you type in Vancouver Real Estate Podcast into Google. On the right-hand side, there's going to be a business... Uh, profile. Business profile, that's yes. right. Click Vancouver review. Real Estate Podcast. Put a profile. review up, and uh, every week we're drawing a new review, and the winner gets assigned copy of vancouverism with your own personalized message very personalized and some of them are i've been reading through the personalized messages uh highly you're personal. gonna be very excited about this <laughs> highly personal so uh, you get this great life advice yeah you get you get larry beasley's personal advice and you get the book what more can you want but maybe we should cut to our interview here because speaking, speaking of, of great books speaking of great books exactly great yeah. segue there yeah absolutely enjoy guys this is uh charles montgomery happy city okay so we're here with charles montgomery author of happy city and founding principal of a consultancy of the same name how you doing charles i'm good good to see you yeah yeah thanks for coming in and taking the time today so maybe charles can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself uh all right i'm a, a longtime vancouver resident uh, I was actually born in uh, North Vancouver, but grew up in the Cowichan Valley on the island. Um, I, but I think the significant thing is um, I, I moved back to the city in my 20s, and I recall being angry and frustrated a lot of the time, you know, a small town guy back in the city, and everything just seems so hard and, uh, and alienating, actually. So that kind of planted a seed in me um, that led to, led to the book Happy City in the end, although I thought it would be pretty bad to call it uh, angry city yeah. <laughs> vancouver specific book uh, so 
and I think I want to get into this uh, later in the conversation, but this book strikes me as a very Vancouver. It's it's not a surprise that it came out of Vancouver. So would you say your experience in Vancouver in your 20s kind of led you down this path of trying to figure out what makes people happy in urban environments? Um, I guess the seeds were planted, but to be honest with you, um, uh, the book was born in Mexico City. I was editing my previous book there, which is about myth and magic in the South Pacific. And um, in between edits, I would wander this this wondrous, mysterious city. And it, it occurred to me that there's more ma- magic and, and mystery um, and fascination to be had in, in our cities than, than I found in the South Pacific. So I, I started to pursue... Um, my curiosity about cities, but I, I didn't really have anything to hook it on until one day I met the mayor of Bogota, Colombia. And this guy, Enrique Peñalosa was his name, he, he, um, he claimed to have redesigned his city to maximize happiness. And I'm like, well, you are a politician, aren't you? Because that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds pretty slippery to me. Yeah, but it, it, the question was intrigued me and, uh, and it became kind of an obsession. Was it, was it really possible to to use design to make people happier in cities. Is there a science that can, can lead the way? And, and so it sounds like you're, you're at least two books deep. I know you're writing something now, presumably. Uh, there's other books, at least in the works for the mm-hmm. future. Mm-hmm. Hey, are you a, an author first or an urban planner first? Or how do you, <laughs> how do you, how do you perceive yourself? Um, or identify, I should oh, say. Oh, boy, that's a tough question. Um, I'm actually fighting with my team about this right now. So, you know, we have this consultancy and we're happening, helping cities on questions of design and architecture and planning. But I, I really am, fundamentally am a storyteller. So I use uh, research and uh, experience to investigate uh, questions that are interesting to me. And then, um, uh, and then use stories to help, to help, help explain how, how the world works and really to explain it to myself, first of all. Um, but I do find myself in this odd role of um, of advising cities now around the world, and uh, no, I'm not an urban planner. Never studied it. Right, that's that's incredible. Um, so I, I want to jump into the kind of crux of of what what you mean by happy city and and all the rest. But just one other thought occurs to me here. Um, I was as I read the book Happy City, uh, I was thinking a lot about Vancouver. Um, I've done some traveling in Latin America as well. I've been to Bogota, I've been to Mexico City. It sounds like there's a pretty large component of this that was born in Latin America. Is that is there is there a reason for that? Or is it actually the personalities you met? Mm. Or is there something specific to a Latin American city? Because they are they are unique in my mind. Uh like a city like Mexico City is just an incredible place. But um yeah, that's interesting. I mean, as I said, this for me the seeds were planted in Mexico City because it's such a complex and wondrous place. And I, I think this is something we often fail to recognize about cities, is they work because they're complex. And the people who've destroyed cities for the last century are, are those who've tried to oversimplify complex problems. Right. Um, so, you know, a place like Mexico City, tremendous problems. Um, very rich and very poor are cheek by jowl. Um, some people commute for four hours a day. It's brutal. And yet, and yet, you can live in a neighborhood and, um, 
and walk out on the street and, and find everything you need within a three minute walk because people are selling things on the street. So, you know, the informal economy there, uh, unaccounted for, um, becomes a force for, um, well, first of all, for, for employment for so many people, but second of all, a force to make life easier and actually healthier for folks who just live in neighborhoods and want to get stuff done. Right. Right. So maybe we could, maybe we should work towards what we mean by or what you mean actually by by happy city. But but first, you mentioned the the folks over say the last half century or, or century who have have oversimplified cities and and it sounds like um, led to some problematic conditions. Can you kind of talk a little bit about why so many cities are unhappy? <laughs> Um, well, no, I'm not going to speak generally about why cities, <laughs> okay. so many cities are unhappy because, you know, every, every place is unique. I can speak about the North American example. And, um, I, I think the early work in North American cities, particularly, um, before, uh, cities were dominated by, by private cars was, was excellent. I mean, I look at the neighborhood where we're sitting right now, we're in Grandview Woodlands and, um, you know, a century ago. A bunch of entrepreneurs wanted to make a bunch of money off of property development. So what did they do? They created a high street. They created a, um, a streetcar line um, so they could sell property near those lines. But they also, on the high street, created uh, shops and services uh, with apartments above. They created enough density nearby so people could walk to the high street and take the tram and... Um, um, and not rely on private automobiles, we're still benefiting from that wondrous, fairly complex system today. Mm-hmm. Um, what went wrong? I mean, something went terribly wrong shortly after that era. First of all, uh, technology changed. We had the benefit of these wondrous machines we call cars um, that enable people to travel farther distances. But second of all, forces such as racism, classism, Entered the planning regime. We created uh, zoning codes um, that essentially stuck neighborhoods like like bugs in amber, stuck them in place, uh, didn't allow any change. So now you look at, say, places like the west side of Vancouver. You know, you have these neighborhoods that haven't, essentially haven't changed in decades. In fact, some of them, you have population decline. Um, because we don't allow new forms. We don't allow multifamily living in those neighborhoods. So um, there's a, a form of oversimplification that has hurt cities across the continent. And and so when you say oversimplification, it sounds like cars, in terms of bad actors, hmm. right? <laughs> I would I would guess guys like um, like the the guy that always comes to mind is kind of Robert Moses right in New York like the guy mm-hmm. building the the freeways and the and and destroying kind of neighborhoods um in the 60s I guess that was mm. but what are the 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 bad actors or the bad forces like it sounds like cars play a, a huge role in in this story are there others that are working to mm. to oversimplify but destroy cities Bad actors. Well, I, I mean, cities have been um, corroded, or well-being in cities has been corroded by, by various forces. Um, you know, we talk about cars. I mean, cars are not evil in themselves. Um, I love to drive. I hate to drive in traffic. Right. Um, 
So, um, unfortunately, the decision decades ago now that, um, yeah, we don't really need transit. You know, we can plan our cities around the car and people can just drive very long distances. So, if you look at well-being in American cities, and, you know, Americans have built some of the worst cities in the last 40 years, um, and, you could, and you compare self-reports of well-being, social trust, trust in neighbors, health, um, between people who are living on the auto-dependent edges of big American cities and people who are living in connected, walkable, mixed-use neighborhoods in the core, the difference is stark. People who are living out on the edge are reporting being less likely to know their neighbors, less likely to trust their neighbors, less likely to volunteer, vote, play team sports, because they just don't have time. Now, you take that same person or family and uh, give them the opportunity. The opportunity. Nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. Right. None of us are. But what, what we're saying is, if we give more people the opportunity to live in places that are connected and walkable... Um, their lives will get easier and they'll get healthier. Work by Lawrence Frank at UBC, you know, remarkable work. Uh, Larry has shown that um, there's a direct correlation between healthcare costs per individual on, uh, say, associated with diabetes or heart disease and the kind of neighborhood that people are living in. Mm-hmm. So not only are these um, dispersed, auto-dependent neighborhoods uh, bad for people's happiness, but they're costing our healthcare system Heaps of money. And the ironic thing is that we've been subsidizing that way of living for decades now by subsidizing highways, for example. Right. Is there, so in order to, to move away from kind of the suburban sprawl that we've, that we've seen in, across North America for, you know, 50, 75 years, like, it, it still strikes me as that's still, for a lot of people, the, the goal, right? Like, like to get a single family home. Uh, to get a, a yard for the kids, what needs to change to to make cities happier in the way that you're talking about, and to and to kind of lead the way for market forces to kind of li- move towards more dense, connected well, I, living. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned market forces because if you um, look at uh, surveys of American and and some of uh, Canadian, um, let's call them housing consumers. Um, their preference increasingly is to live in places that are walkable and connected. And yet people are continuing to move to the edges of our big cities. So why? Is it because they're stupid? No. Right. It's because um, we're not allowing our cities to, to evolve over time. We're not allowing our neighborhoods to change. Um, and we're keeping people out of favored areas in the city. And to me, that's it's such a shame to see that happen. I mean, look at Vancouver. You have to be uh, pretty wealthy now to uh, to own in Vancouver um, and even to rent in Vancouver. So um, I think that's the question we really need to ask ourselves. First of all, how can we make these walkable, connected, healthy places more available to more people from all income ranges? Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about in the core, you know, in the suburbs as well. You know, they have core... Um, neighborhoods in the suburbs that um, that can become wonderful, connected, walkable villages for people to to live near if they want to live in their single family homes. Right. 
So, you know, we've had people on the show before, like Nathan Louster, a sociologist at UBC, talking about the death of the single family home. Uh, and, and it strikes me as, as at least at least on Twitter and the people we talk to, that there's there seems like there's quite a, a push right now uh, or an acknowledgement that denser urban living is is better for the planet. It's better for health and and happiness as as your book outlines uh, why is this why now for for this kind of larger acknowledgement that maybe we've been living the wrong way um it's a good question uh, I think if you look at uh, demographic um, surveys, millennials in particular are reporting um, if you show them pictures of various landscapes uh, they're reporting an overwhelming preference for the place that looks walkable and connected and easier um I, I think people are also um, figuring out that the ex-urban auto-dependent choice is actually very expensive. If you mm-hmm. look at your entire budget and you, you know, throw in your housing expenses and your transportation expenses, you know, that uh, suburban bungalow is actually no longer affordable right. if, if you factor in all those extra costs. I think it's really important now that we can consider, and people are considering the, um, the effects of um, urban form on climate change. Um, you know, what are the, what, what are the most powerful things we can do to lower our greenhouse gas emissions? Well, one of them is live somewhere where you're sharing walls with other people. The other is, you know, change your mode of transportation. So I think some people are paying attention to that, but I think also in a city like Vancouver, you just have to acknowledge we've made some beautiful places. Um, look at the Olympic village, Look at some of the neighborhoods close in where we've really nurtured lovely uh, parks and facilities. It's a great place to be. So no wonder that pe- no wonder people want to be there. The big question is, how can we give more people opportunities to live in these places that don't make life worse, both for them and, and residents who live in those places? So Charles, it strikes me that, that Vancouver is seen as a model uh, for a lot of other communities in terms of, of what has been built here over the last, say, since Expo 86, right? With the kind of dense downtown and urban living. Um, but it sounds like you guys, and it sounds like you've done quite a bit of studying around residential uh, towers and the way they're built uh, in regards to happiness, what are your thoughts on the way we're building towers here in terms of happiness, and, and what would you like to see? It's such an important question because I think some of the backlash against density is really backlash against what's seen as an alienating form, you know, the tower form. It's really a personal question for me because I had a breakup three years ago and I found myself living alone in an apartment. And uh, I still remember the day, like, hearing the neighbor's dog howling, howling out of loneliness. So I text the neighbor. I'm like, hey, can I go over and hug your dog? <laughs> and they had left all alone. And uh, so I, you know, I trudge over and let myself in and give the dog a big hug. And we kind of cry together. And I, I realize, oh, I'm not sad for the dog. I'm sad for myself. And it, I realize I've just entered the... Um, the most common demographic in Canada, which is people living all by themselves. Right. And so um, I talked to my team. So at Happy, at Happy City, we're a team of uh, researchers, uh, architects, urban planners, you know, an interdisciplinary team. I'm like, what, how can we crack this nut? 
if we want to give more people a chance to live closer together, how can we ensure that multifamily housing actually nurtures social relationships right. and, and social trust? Because there's, there's no more powerful contributor to happiness than that, than our, than our relationships. So we spent a year on these questions, and we, we created a toolkit. We call it the Happy Housing Toolkit. It's online. It's on our website. It's free right. to use. Um, and what we discovered, um, maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was a surprise for me. I used to think, yeah, if we just push everyone together, they'll all, they'll all be friends. Well, it right. doesn't work that way right. at all. Right. If you look at uh, anthropology and psychology and neuroscience, the best way to push people apart is to push them together. So... People living in residential towers, you know, despite, despite the alienation that happens at, on the ex-urban edge of our cities, people living in residential towers are the most likely to report feeling lonely and crowded at the very same time. Yeah. And uh, studies by the Vancouver Foundation note that, you know, tower residents are less likely to do favors for neighbors or, or get along with their neighbors or trust their neighbors than people who are living close to the ground. So we have this conundrum. If the sprawl on the edge doesn't work... And if the tower doesn't work or it's alienating for many people, you know, what, what's the solution? Right. And, you know, people have been banding about this word for some time. The solution is the missing middle. Um, you may have heard this expression. Yeah, but I always think of it as the missing middle or I've thought of it as as kind of the middle class uh, mm. kind of housing in Vancouver, right? Not the luxury and not the social component. But. Sure. No, I mean, yes, but in, um, in the design world, the term missing middle refers to a multifamily housing that sits on that spectrum in between the single family home and the residential tower. We're talking about duplexes, quadruplex, quadruplex, is that a dinosaur? <laughs> Quads? <laughs> Um, um, stacked townhouses, uh, low rises up to four stories, five stories, this kind of thing. And the reason I say that is because our research showed that, um, social scale really matters when it comes to feelings of being crowded or feeling connected to your neighbors. Mm-hmm. So if, um, multifamily housing that limits social clusters to about 12 households, has been found in, in many, many cases to be the best at nurturing local relationships. So imagine 12 households sharing a, a small common space or sharing a front entrance. Right. Um, also, um, we looked at the effect of our exposure to other people. In other words, there's a spectrum between your bedroom and the party on the street. And paying attention to that spectrum is really important. The soft zones, the semi-private zones, semi-public zones are, are really important to create that soft transition. Uh, the architect Jan Gell, for example, studied people hanging out in front yards in Canada and found that the front yard depth at which people hung out the most and talked to their neighbors was about, um, I think it was uh, four meters, four or five meters. Huh. And, you know, not very deep at all. Yeah. And so we, we've been playing with these concepts, but the the big lesson is that limit social scale. Don't force people to interact with too many people in a bank of elevators. You know, interacting with 300 neighbors, bad. You're not yeah. going to remember their names. Maybe, maybe a dozen households as neighbors, good. Interesting. So then in that, in that case, for, for happiness, it sounds like the four floors and corner stores type model <laughs> throughout Vancouver is actually not, not only... I mean, it's is good for happiness. 
Well, again, we, I don't want to oversimplify the problem and commit the error <laughs> that people my, uh, have been committing my, for, for decades <laughs> that's now. That's what I do well. Um, but I think it's time to start experimenting with, uh, the, well, with these old forms, but also creating new forms mm-hmm. like this. Um, we uh, at Happy City have worked with um, a development team, a small-scale, uh, really ethical developers uh, called uh, Tomo. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like it. It stands for Together More. And they said to us, look, can we pour all the lessons from your research into social well-being and multifamily housing into one development? And so we played around with them and their architect, Marianne Amodio, and um, came up with what we thought is like the perfect distillation of the science. And what it is, is a, well, we have a design. It's called Tomo House. It's going through rezoning. Um, at 41st and Main, it basically takes uh, two lots and uh, creates a space for 12 households, which is the perfect social cluster in our yeah. opinion, under one roof um, with soft edges, townhouse edges, but also uh, an internal courtyard, exterior circulation. So people will have opportunities to bump into their neighbors without having to invite them for dinner and a small common house. So it's also borrowing um, ideas from the co-housing movement, which is essentially about, about creating small urban villages. Um, and it also has a, an affordability component, an affordable ownership component, where some of the units will be, I believe, might be 20% below market. So kind of hitting all these markers together, it's going to be more social. It's going to be more sustainable. I believe it's a passive house design. It'll be more affordable for some of the units, but also more affordable for everyone because people will be sharing um, their time with each other and helping each other. This is so one of the things that struck me when I was looking at at Tomo, uh, just because, you know, we work in real estate and this goes so against, you know, um, uh, what most people that we're talking to are looking for, but shared laundry. Mm hmm. That's that's an incredible. So so you're in, in Tomo, as I understand you're bringing back the shared laundry facility <laughs> it, sure. as as an amenity right right not as a hair shirt to yeah. wear not as punishment <laughs> yeah it's the same in i'm uh, i'm i'm this is a personal story for me too i'm part of an, a, a co-housing group and we're building at 33rd in quebec so we're 25 households who came together to build our own village so six stories we get our own unit but we also have a big shared dining area on the on the ground floor um, and yes, we have a laundry room with windows overlooking the courtyard. So it's a place where you might not want to hang out there all day, but a place to linger a little bit. Right, right. And, and, and basically a place for social interaction. Absolutely. That's fascinating. So we've talked a little bit about not so much co-housing, but about these uh, kind of more inclusive residential complexes uh, before on the show. Are you seeing, so you've mentioned two, Tomo and the one that you're involved in uh, on... Little Mountain Co-Housing. Little Mountain Co-Housing. Are there others? Like, are, is this... Because it definitely doesn't... It's not on our radar as, yeah. as real estate agents, but it wouldn't be, right? At least Well, no, not it's, right it's now. because co-housing developments don't need you. Yeah. <laughs> because they have a long list of people yeah. hoping to move into them right. already. But, um, and I have to say, the movement faces so many barriers. So there are a few co-housing developments in Metro Vancouver. One is Vancouver Co-housing. And um, residents there have told us they save 1500 bucks a month on childcare because they have the village there right. to support right. each other. 
And to me, that's remarkable. You know, it, it doesn't just make your life more social and doesn't just make you feel more calm and connected and offer you more meaning in your life, but it saves you money. Yeah. Now, how did it go for Vancouver co-housing? Well, it took them years to get a rezoning. Why? Because they wanted to build in a so-called single-family neighborhood. And they wanted to look build something that looked different than, you know, three houses on the road with pitched roofs. Yeah. And this is what we're facing in Vancouver. We're facing barriers that consist of um, habits in the development industry, but mostly barriers that consist of bad, outdated rules that keep people uh, from doing more with their land that can uh, create better communities. And I, I would say also we're dealing with um, outdated ways of thinking a little bit. I know a lot of folks who, um, who I really respect who oppose any new density in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And they use words like, this will ghettoize our neighborhood. And on the other hand, they use words like, oh, luxury housing in our neighborhood. We don't want that. I mean, sometimes it'll be used to describe the same project. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, right? Do you think, so it sounds like, because what you're describing to me seems like such a no-brainer, it's hard to imagine uh, anyone uh, being opposed to it. But it, I guess it, it is that not-in-my-backyard type movement where, where change of any kind, down to like the most ridiculous, I think street parking is like cited all the time as a as as a fear that you're not going to have the same amount of it's not going to be as easy to park your car on the street um like do you th- are these challenges uh, they're definitely not insurmountable but are you are you seeing that you're you're making progress there well isn't it ironic that we can find a way in our city a place of scarce land to offer people a free home for their car when we cannot house thousands of homeless people in our city when you think about it that way, it's absolutely shameful. Um, I, I've seen some really cool designs, actually, for housing that can fit in the size of a parking spot. Uh, there's a project in Rotterdam, three-story housing, with an office on top, you know, just uh, uh, and hook it up to municipal um, uh, pipes. But you asked if, if we're making progress. Um, I think globally we are. I think in Vancouver, you know, we have our challenges and uh, because of these, these entrenched um, attitudes, politics, and rules. To me, it's a very good sign that the province and the city have worked together on temporary modular housing uh, to house some of uh, homeless people. It's a very good sign that neighborhoods have been accepting, eventually accepting right. those, those places, and that, for example, in Marpole, when the parents were outraged and opposed this development, their children rose up against them yeah. to encourage their parents to accept these new neighbors. And, um, and that housing in Marple has been, been successful. So, you know, in Vancouver, we're, we're, I think we're taking baby set, steps. We've got a long way to go to reconcile the market-based approach with the absolute need for a non-market solution as well. And they probably need to go together. Now, if you get housing activists in a room with uh, property developers, they actually can come up with um, some rational decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I was speaking with an activist uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she said, you know, this is someone who supports Councillor Jean Swanson's 
outright uh, no on any new market development in the city, unless it's including affordable housing. Well, we got to talking and we thought, well, what if density can always, always be tied to provision of some um, income-linked non-market housing everywhere in the city? They're great proposals. Scott Hine, um, the former um, head of the design studio at the city of Vancouver, has, has noted, uh, I think in the TIE, talked about what if we have dual zoning? Um, across the city, we down zone every single family home. So you can't build a mansion, mm-hmm. um, but also op- offer an optional up zone for that very same property. So you could build uh, six units with you know, one or two of them being uh, locked in as affordable rentals. So those solutions are there. And finally, you said, are we making progress? Well, globally, yeah. Look at uh, Minneapolis which did a blanket enabling of triplexes, I believe, across their city, Mm -hmm. um, which reduces some of of the speculative forces that occur in parts of the city and gives more people more opportunities to do more with their land. Uh, The entire state of Oregon has has passed similar legislation. So I, I think there are signs of hope out there. So we often talk about Vancouver being a leader, but in this case, it sounds like we're being dragged uh, (laughs) unwillingly uh, towards the future that we need. I think people like you and me, white, middle class men, can talk about this stuff over a cup of coffee and say, yeah, things are getting better. It's not bad. And we're very comfortable. Yeah. I think if you are vulnerable, if you are homeless, if you're living on the edge, and I know many of these people, things are dire, and we need urgent action. Mm -hmm. And I just think um, that action needs to take all forms, from temporary modular housing all the way to um, uh, these blanket rezoning approaches. Maybe shifting gears a little bit, Charles, because I know we it's we we focus quite a bit on design like home design right how how to create uh, multifamily spaces that that uh, lead to to happiness and and more social interaction what what about kind of public spaces in cities can you talk a little bit about um, you know, Vancouver's generally celebrated, I think, for for its green spaces and mm. and its uh, public spaces. But do you see places for improvement? Um, why are public spaces so important to people's happiness? And and what are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? We got curious about people's experience of public space a couple of years ago. I had been. Um, doing some work with the Guggenheim Museum in New York City and working with uh, a neuroscientist named Colin Ellard to see how streets made people feel. And uh, on the one hand, we learned that, you know, certain street edges made people feel happier. And they actually um, had an effect on people's level of arousal or excitement in the moment as measured using skin conductance monitors. So that raised our curiosity. We know that green helps people feel calmer and more trusting. We also learned that uh, active street edges, small shops and services, no blank walls. When you do that, people are actually kinder to strangers. So we've been excited to see some of the work the city of Vancouver is doing 
taking back pavement and car storage space and turning it into people space. Mm-hmm. And we decided to study the effects of this. And I'll give you one example. Uh, Mickey Reardon on our team, again, worked with our, our neuroscientist friends at the University of Waterloo to study the effects of these uh, changes in the West End, city of Vancouver had done. Um, and one of them was trying to create a sense of place on Davy Street. So what's a sense of place? Well, a sense of history, a sense of culture, a sense of meaning. And um, City of Vancouver nerdy planners went out and they wanted to know what the neighborhood wanted. So, you know, it's the heart of the gay neighborhood. So um, they called up Joni, one of uh, Vancouver's top drag queens, to like lead them around to bars and cafes and talk to people. And the answer was, well, you know, it would be really cool to have a rainbow intersection. And um, uh, this was also at the same time that Jim Diva Plaza was being planned. And so, you know, the city built Canada's first rainbow intersection. Um, The plaza was built. And then we came in and brought strangers from outside the city, a a hundred people from outside the city on tours, measuring their emotional effects of these spaces. And what we found with the rainbow intersection was just remarkable. These folks, while they were happier, because who doesn't love rainbows, but... They also felt uh, like they cared more about the space. They were more likely to pick up litter. They were more likely to return there and spend money. So good for the economy. But what moved me most is they reported being more likely to trust strangers there. And in a city that is experiencing a crisis of disconnection, it taught us that by shifting these spaces, we can open up kind of a door for people to see each other differently and treat each other differently and, and maybe nurture new uh, friendships. Interesting. Do you have any other examples? Like the, the I used to live uh, down in the West End r- right around there. Um, like, can you, can you speak to some other examples of, of changes to public spaces? Absolutely. That, yeah. The city of Vancouver has a program called the Pavement to Plaza program. And we just finished studying the effects of that program and again, a remarkable shift. So um, looking at, I think it's uh, Butte and Robson. There's a new plaza there. Uh, we looked at Jim Diva Plaza. We looked at uh, Plaza out, I think it's 14th or 15th and Main. Okay. Um, where uh, outside a coffee shop, uh, essentially uh, a street was turned into a, oh, yeah. a, a mini plaza space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where they've blocked. It's actually, it's at 14th and Main, yeah. That's right. Right by the, Star, the Starbucks with the nitro brew. That's the real it. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're, you're navigating your city by coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, like right at the JJ Bean. Yeah, yeah. so uh, Mitchell Reardon uh, worked with um, uh, staff at City of Vancouver to understand the social effects of these spaces. You know, they learned a lot of things. But I think one of the most significant is this, is women in particular felt more comfortable in those spaces, in the, in the places where they took pavement and turned it into plaza than they did on the regular sidewalks. They felt safer. They felt more comfortable. They f- were more likely to return with friends. And again, you know, here we are, two guys sitting around talking about, you know, well-being in cities. Um, so often our cities are planned by men for men and here we realized, well, if we try a little harder to understand women's perspective, um, then we can create a city where that's more inclusive and that works better for women. And obviously women should be doing the designing as well. Right. Um, and which is the case in cities like Vienna, actually. So um, to me, it's just remarkable by seeing our spaces differently, 
by imagining them differently, by using them differently, we actually change our social worlds. And do you think, like, one thing that strikes me is just from what you said when we first uh, got to talking here is, like, it strikes me that there's a period between, say, 19... I don't know, and this, this, I'm, uh, these bookends, probably somebody who knows more about this is, is going to tell me something otherwise, but 1940, 1950, like the suburban rise of car culture to, to now is almost a blip, uh, an unfortunate blip. Like, like the way that people lived, say, at the turn of the 20th century in, in cities like London or New York, there's all sorts of a host of other problems, but, but it seems like what you're suggesting is almost like a, a move back to, to the way that people were living before cars in a lot of ways. Maybe, maybe, or it's a jump forward because, um, again, look at the neighborhood around us. Again, we're in Grandview Woodlands. I wake up in the morning here and I think, geez, how am I going to get to work today? Well, hmm, look at the weather. I could walk over and a bus comes every um, 10 minutes on Nanaimo. Look at an app for that. I could bike because we have fantastic bike infrastructure and it's a 20-minute bike to work. Great. Um, I'm feeling a bit lazy. I could take a car to go or an Evo. So I have all these options. I have uh, a few blocks away now the, uh, uh, the bike share. Yeah. And so um, if we look at the future of mobility... The future of mobility, you know, people talk about mobility as a service. Car companies like Ford are thinking, how can we help people move around? Not how can we sell people cars? Right. So this is the future. But guess what? This future is going to be reserved for people who are living in more mixed, more dense, more complex neighborhoods. I'll give you an example. If you get up at 6.30 in the morning and look for a car to go in this neighborhood, no problem. There's one a block away. By 8 o'clock, they're all gone. Why are they all gone? Well, because on this side of the neighborhood, out by Nanaimo Street, there are, there are no businesses. So nobody's coming into that neighborhood in the morning. If we want to benefit from like a multitude of these services that make life easier and give us more choice, then we actually need to be building more complex neighborhoods. For example, if there was a business or businesses or services a couple blocks from my house on Nanaimo Street, people would come there in the morning, drop off the car to go, and I would take it and go. Yeah. Now, of course... It, considering climate change and even human health, I, I personally prefer to move in ways that um, don't burn carbon. And, and those ways are coming, you know, looking at the e-scooters and these other ways of moving uh, using micro-mobility. Right. I even saw the electric bikes, um, a study recently that people that ride electric bikes actually bike as much as if you were biking uh, just on a regular bike. Like it's actually not a, a form of laziness, which is kind of an interesting... Uh, I know, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. There's a, um, there's a bike activist who shall remain unnamed um, who was complaining about people switching to e-bikes and yeah. how lazy they are. And again, it gets like, well, it's really easy to talk that way when you're a middle-aged guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But in 20 years, when your knees go... Uh, should you just stop biking? Right. So um, again, it comes back to how can we look at the city as a complex system and, and find you know a multitude of solutions for our problems, and that comes when both we take when we take different perspectives, but also when we involve different kinds of people um, in the process of studying the city and planning the city. I mean, we we were working in uh, Mexico City to look at the well being effects of changes to public parks there. Uh huh. 
And our team was walking around just going, well, no, I'll just admit it. I was walking around going, hey, this is a great park. Looks great. Wonderful for me. And then uh, we brought in a team of people with various disabilities to take the same walk or roll. And first of all, the blind person got hit in the head, walked into an overhead walkway. Right. Um, someone in a wheelchair couldn't get more than 100 meters into the park. Um, someone with, um, with another kind of injury uh, couldn't move through the park because they needed a bench every 100 meters. And so um, we realized we need, to, we need to, to see with many different eyes and feel with many different, different bodies. Right. Is there, and I know you're, uh, we're kind of right at the end of, of your time here, maybe as a, as a final question, is there, like I alluded to before, we often, at least on this podcast, like to think of Vancouver as a model and, and you know, uh, but it sounds in this case like there's, there's happier cities out there. Like, are you optimistic about the future of Vancouver, but also wh- which cities do you look to and say, wow, this is... This is where we should, there's lessons to be learned. Everybody <laughs> wants to know what's the happiest city in the world. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're learning lessons from various cities. You could learn about mobility from Copenhagen, Amsterdam, cities in the Netherlands. Uh, but can you afford to live in Copenhagen? No. Right. Uh, you can l- learn about um, affordability from Vienna where the government has invested for decades in uh, affordable housing, affordable rental housing, and it's mixed right in with the market housing. Um, So people who live and work in Vienna can stay there for generations without fear of being uh, rent evicted, Mm -hmm. (laughs) etc. We're learning from cities like Mexico City, where they've taken the best, fastest roads and handed them over to a rapid bus network. So people who share space on the road don't have to sit behind people fuming in their private cars. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not fair. It's bad for everyone. Incidentally, when Bogota did the same thing, after a year they found that everybody got to work faster, even people driving their BMWs, because so many people shifted to that system. We're learning from activists in cities around the world where they're just tired of waiting for government to make these changes and they're marching out and they're changing public space on their own. I think of my activist friends in Mexico City uh, where, you know, they blasted these huge avenues through the city, you know, 60 years ago and now it's an incredibly dangerous place to be on these avenues. So they march out with traffic cones and they carve out little spaces where pedestrians could be. And after a day or two, um, if, if that goes well, then they paint those zones to show the city that they can have these new plazas. Typically what happens is um, city administrators, traffic engineers, they get very angry about this and threaten to sue you. And then they implement those very changes themselves. <laughs> so it's happening everywhere. Yeah. And I think that's the important to remember is, you know, we, we can advocate for our government to do things differently, but um, there's also something called nighttime. And at nighttime... You can do things with a paintbrush that are transformative. Yeah. Well, you know what? Even in this neighborhood, uh, at certain times of the year, you'll see cones up uh, on certain streets where it, you're, the assumption is, oh, there's work going on in this. And it's actually just guys mm-hmm. like me mm-hmm. or you mm-hmm. putting cones up because, you know, it's the middle of the summer and there's kids all over the street. And somebody who doesn't want to dr- sit in traffic on Hastings decides to rip through all the, the residential streets like an idiot. So, um, yeah, it does. It, it's happening here as well, I guess. It's kind of exciting to when you kind of frame it that way. Mm. I guess 
my biggest hope is that here in Vancouver, especially, we can change our attitude about other people, about people that are maybe different than, our, than ourselves, people who are not homeowners, especially, and think, how can I make more space in my neighborhood for, for people who, who weren't as lucky as me, who didn't win the housing lottery mm-hmm. you know, a decade or two ago? And those options are out there. Um, some of them are in the form of uh, non-market rental. Some are in the form of market rental. Um, some are in the form of, of new options where we can push our city council to let people do more with their land, provided that they lock in some affordable options there. And um, the key is to see that, you know, the city's for all of us. And by all of us, I also mean the people who can't live here anymore, people who've been pushed out. How can we make space for all of us? Right. Well, maybe that's a good place to to end. Uh, Charles, we do have a a quick segment called the Five Wire. Can you stick around for that? Five quick questions about Vancouver? (laughs) All right. Okay, first question. Favorite neighborhood? And and we've established we're coming live from the commercial drive. Duh, (laughs) it's the drive. I I saw that one coming. Uh, Favorite restaurant or bar? It used to be the Camby. Yeah. What a, that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, back when I was a drunk kid. Uh, now, now I'd say um, uh, I love uh, Mezcal on the drive. Right. That's a, that's a great spot. First place you bring somebody from out of town and presumably you host people from all over the world. Hmm. I take people to Woodward's to demonstrate two things. First of all, what's possible when governments, institutions, activists uh, all come together to build a place where rich and poor can, um, can live and meet and intermingle, but also to demonstrate that even when you do that, you can fail if you don't manage the rest of the neighborhood so that more people don't get pushed out because that place works so well. Right. So again, it's about complexity. And I think it, I take people to Woodward's to, to initiate that discussion. That's a, that's a good answer. <laughs> Usually we get the seawall. <laughs> uh, if you could give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Drink less, read more. <laughs> I'm writing oh, it down. Oh, and come out of the closet sooner, <laughs> yeah. right now, yeah. and have lots of sex. <laughs> Uh, the good, good answer. <laughs> and, and the last uh, last question for you here today, Charles. Have you bought something in the last year, year and a half for under $500 that's totally transformed your life or made a positive impact? I purchased um, ukulele lessons. <laughs> okay. Uh, at Ruby's Ukes. Yeah, uh, which is a community of ukulele <laughs> players uh, led by this amazing uh, woman, and uh, uh, opened my eyes to the language of music, as crude as the ukulele did, can be. Did, did you did you play any other instrument before that, or was it no, just a no? And I'm wow. still just banging away like a child. Is it? And what was the uh, why the ukulele? <laughs> <laughs> The ukulele, because I can travel with it. I, I also want right. a, a plastic ukulele. I put in my pack, and when I'm going to uh, work in Dubai or Poland or elsewhere, and I'm feeling lonely in a hotel room, I can pull out the ukulele and, and uh, sing uh, Stand By Me. 
sounds sounds good. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Charles. Uh, we should we should uh, ask quickly here. First of all, your book. Happy City Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design is, is a phenomenal book that everyone out there should should get. But how can people learn more about what you're doing? I know you've, you guys have done a ton since that book was published. Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah, you can uh, learn more about uh, our consultancy work at uh, thehappycity.com. Sounds good. Well, thanks again, Charles. Thank you. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Charles Montgomery, author of Happy City Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design and founder of the consulting firm of the name of the same name, thehappycity.com. Thehappycity.com sounds like a great site. You know what? I've spent some time on the site. They actually have some research tools there that are very, uh, and not to overshadow our research tools, (laughs) right? but they have uh, their own set of research tools on that site. Uh, It's a a great site and it's a great firm. They're doing really interesting work. So uh, check that out for sure. Yeah. If you're not using Happy Cities resources, (laughs) you are standing still while the rest of us smile by. Um, What else do we got, Matt, for today? Well, we got the winner of our uh, book. Vancouverism by Larry Beasley. Another great book. Another great book. Drumroll secret. Okay, this week's winner. It's a new. This is interesting because it's a new review um, drawn from the hat. Tony Perzer. Tony writes. Puerze, I think. Matt. Is it Puerze? I don't know. We're, we we'll we'll get Tony to clarify, but I'm thinking Puerze. Puerze, Puerzer. Um, okay, Tony. Well, here here's how it goes. I totally love this podcast. Capitalized love. Appreciate Adam and that. Matt are great hosts, and they manage to get amazing guests. Worth a listen. In fact, if you're not listening to this podcast, you're standing still. Well, the rest of us power walk by. I couldn't oh. have said that better myself, oh. Tony. Uh, you're, you've taken the words right out of my mouth. And Matt, what else do we got for today? What else do we got? Well, we should. that's a great segue into the research tools over at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com where we have tons of research tools like private client services. Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. It's basically realtor-level information. It's free. It's at your fingertips. All you have to do is go to vancouverrealestatepodcast.com slash PCS and sign up for your free account. That's right. If you're searching for Vancouver real estate and you're not using PCS, you're doing it wrong. We also have other features on our site like the Live Wire where you got deal of the month, you got tips and tricks. We're sending out assignments. It is one subscription free of charge that you don't want to miss and matt we should say pcs is a resource for buyers but sellers don't fret we've got some amazing resources for you coming and guess what this is this is largely prompted by a lot of people reaching out they had listened to our episode 166 why is my home not selling in vancouver seven proven ways to course correct and we have your course correct right here actually next week we're going to be giving away our free book on the best tips on how to sell your property. And it is comprehensive. We've comprehensive. We've been working hard on this. Comprehensive, so. market-specific. 
you're going to you're going to want to sign up for this. And it's free. It's absolutely free. So we're going to have that next week. We will announce when it's up on the site. We cannot wait. And Matt, how can people get in touch? They can get in touch with me at any time, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line still on holiday. Uh, yeah. This guy takes more time off. The, getting the photos? You can follow him on Instagram at Flex Flexington. Uh, he's been uh, he's a lot of shirts off on this trip. I I don't even think the guy has a shirt. I don't think he even brought a shirt. Uh, I I didn't know about this account. I'll check it out. <laughs> check it out. All right, guys. We'll have a well, great wait, wait, week. wait. Oh, info, info. Oh yeah, info. At Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Right, right, right. And and Flex, if you're listening, uh, we need you back. Yeah, yeah. We miss you. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs>